Welcome to the Moser on Manufacturing Podcast, brought to you by Jacket Media Co. I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. Hello, everyone. This is Lou Weiss from Manufacturing Talk Radio with Harry Moser from Reshore <laughs> Initiative and Moser on Manufacturing. How you doing, Harry? Oh, it's it's great to be back with you, Lou. It's, we've had a, a good, I think, a very good series so far, and it's uh, it, it's one of the highlights of my month. Oh, my God. How wonderful it is to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So today, Harry, we're going to talk about uh, your favorite topic about reshoring and rebuilding. And uh, we're going to talk about how contract manufacturers need to do their thing to do a successful rebuilding and reshoring. Does that work for you? That's the topic. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. That's great. Harry, let's go. So okay. reshoring and contractors. Not OEMs, but the little mom paws, the mid mid range companies. What do they need to do to successfully rebuild and and do the reshoring? Now, let me expand the definition just a little bit to sure. to, to to not just contract manufacturers, but but the the supply chain companies that feed the product up to the big companies. So yes, like your shop, support shop, clearly a contract manufacturer. But, but there's also companies that sell pumps and fans and motors and, you know, the things that maybe have their own brand name on it, but that they don't they don't sell to consumers that they go into somebody else's assembly that gets on to the consumer. So, so I'm going to lump those those together right. and, and I, I tend to divide them uh, by size. And so I, I, I pulled some government statistics out and. Uh, to the extent that you can trust the government, <laughs> in this I'll in this I'll trust them. Uh, and we the, trust our government. Okay, so uh, establishments or, or factories bigger than 500, maybe two and a half million people altogether. Three thousand factories, maybe two and a half million employees. Uh, 100 to 499. So that's getting into the category we're talking about. Uh, uh, 13,000 establishments, 2.6 million people. Okay, and then one to 99, 350,000 establishments or factories, and about 8 million people. So, so more than half, significantly more than half of the manufacturing employees are, are in that uh, smaller size category. And that, that's really what we're talking about. So they're, they're doing half or more of the total actual manufacturing that's happening in the country. So that's important. Sure. And this year actually was, I think, the first time in a long time where the uh, population of manufacturing companies have gone up. Yeah, because it's, it's been in a long downtrend. I, I read somewhere in the last, I don't know, between 2000 and 2010, maybe 80,000 or 90,000 manufacturing companies disappeared. Yeah. And, and with them, millions and you know, five million jobs or whatever that, that right. went away with them. So the so the, so numerically, we're really important, and and I think, I think the companies we're talking about are the most productive portions of U.S. manufacturing because you take you take a, a a big OEM Boeing, Lockheed, General Motors, what have you, 
they're selling a branded product and they can get away with a with a factory hourly rate of you know 300 400 an hour or something like that whereas in a job shop like yours and and you're selling if you're selling machine time think if you think of it as machine time hundred dollars an hour eighty dollars an hour somewhere somewhere in that kind of range right is is, is still for like so so these these big companies because they have a not a monopoly but they got a pretty strong position with their brand they're 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 able to charge a premium for the work and therefore they i don't think they expect as much you know partially because their labor is more likely to be unionized but but in general big factories just aren't as productive as mid-sized kind of factory i think five five people is too small but but somewhere between you know 25 and 100 is is a, is a very efficient place i think to be so so i think we're the, the kind of companies we're talking about are are uh the most productive but but they're often despite being more productive than the big companies they're they're not typically not world competitive so if you think of where do you find the best mid-sized companies in the world most people would say germany because they've got something called the the, the Mittelstand. the middle i think is middle so it's the middle group of, of companies you know and family-owned very productive very strong apprenticeship systems. The the employee, the high school kid at the age of 16 comes in, becomes an apprentice, works his or her way up, you know, finishes the apprenticeship system, works the way up in the company, knows the, the 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 process, the product, the customers, the other employees, the company, works his way up, eventually becomes a vice president, maybe owns the company. So it's a, it's a great, great career opportunities there. And and we haven't done as good a job of that whole whole system. So, so Germany has this great training system that helps theirs. And Germany, or say China, the, the shops are more aggressive than ours. So they sell harder and, and they can throw bodies at a project. Um, like I get maybe three or four emails a day from Chinese companies trying to sell me <laughs> molds and dyes and plastic parts and all kinds. I'm the I'm the reshoring guy. Yeah. And, and 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 I get maybe one a month from a US company trying to sell me something. So so these Chinese are they're good business people, they're aggressive, they're hungry. They they go out and they and they, and they hustle the work and and, and we don't. You know, that's hard. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Germany, their educational system, their public educational system has, uh, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic. They also have uh, uh, training in uh, manufacturing and training in uh, uh, technology and so on as part of the uh, uh, public training system. We don't have that. Yeah, well, we have some. We used to have shop classes and things bit. like that, mostly shut down. But in 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 Germany, Switzerland, Austria, especially those core Germanic countries, yeah. um, they they have that tradition. It came up through the guild system, you know, over the last centuries. And the the the, the at the age of sixteen, maybe at the age of fifteen, they go out and they do an internship for a week or two at a company, so they get to get some idea of what's out there. And then in sixteen. 60%, 60% go to work for a, as an apprentice, take a job as an apprentice, full time. But, but of that time, let's say to start with maybe two days a week, they're still at the technical high school 
studying math and physics and you know English and you know whatever. And then the other three days or so a week, they're actually making parts on a machine somewhere and being guided by a master. So, so you get really smart kids that here would unquestionably be told they have to go to university. And instead, you have these really smart kids going into the apprenticeship system. So here, part of the problem in this country is that the, the parents love to have their kids go to school, go to college. We want you to go to college. We don't want you working in a machine shop. We don't want you doing underwater welding. We don't want you doing that. They want you to go to college, get a degree, have a two, $300,000 debt. It's a mistake. Totally. <laughs> and and, and it's, just, it's a mistake at the micro level for the individual. Like I, I, I saw, I saw, I read an article about some woman who was complaining because she she hadn't gotten her college debt paid off yet by the government. And, and, and she said, this is unfair. When I was in high school, everybody said, you have to go, if you want to get ahead, if you want to have a good income, you have to go to university, you have to get a degree. And, that, that's, and, and then I went ahead and I got the degree and I've got $100,000 in debt and the government won't pay my debt off for me. Now, now she, she, that message should never be out there. The message should be, here's one route, go go directly to university, it's fine, especially if you're going to go into engineering, metallurgy, you know, something like that. But, but here's a, if you don't have 100,000 to pay for that or 200,000, here's another choice, go into an apprenticeship system and let your company that you go to work for pay for your education. <laughs> and so you've got a job, no debt, somebody paying for your future education and a career and money, you know, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> it, it makes uh, perfect, uh, perfect sense, but it still hasn't happened. Uh, they're still not paying off the college uh, tuitions or they're almost about to maybe. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think they should. I think, I mean, they should if, if there was fraud, if, if, the, if, the, if one of these colleges misrepresented the opportunities. But if the kid just walks into State University and says, I'm going to study sociology, and then they can't find any jobs as a sociology major, well, that's their fault for, for, for not research. Just, just like if you buy a machine, for your Ford shop, and the machine is the wrong size, <laughs> the wrong tonnage, that's your fault. You, you didn't do your homework. So I, I think people have to, at, at, at that kind of an age, 18, whatever, they have to assume responsibility for the decisions that they made. Harry, you, you have a, a tool that you have on your website, uh, uh, TOC, total cost, uh, total T -T TCO. TCO, sorry, yeah, total it. cost of ownership. And uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because manufacturers, large or small, but particularly the small to medium size, which we're talking about now, the contractors, they, do they really know what their cost of operation is? Uh, they, they know what their, their own internal costs are. Right. They, they, you know, allocations of costs and burden and all, they're very complicated, but still they have a pretty good idea what their internal costs are. But the biggest fault I find is in their calculation of the total cost of product that they outsource. You know, for example, if, if, they, if they compare the US source to the Chinese or Indian source, they typically look at just the FOB price, 
and they, they ignore the uh, the total cost. And the total cost would be that FOB price plus duty, freight, carrying cost of inventory, risk of stocking out, intellectual property risk, all this kind of thing. And and when you when you do that math, comparing US to China, the US win rate goes from eight percent based on price to 32% based on total cost. And if there's a, a 15% section 301 tariff, then it goes to 46%. So you go from 8% to 46% by doing the math. And that, that that's a big that's a big improvement. That's something Huge. Yogi Berra could have said something smart about. Huge. Huge. <laughs> uh, so the 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 labor cost of manufacturing. How much of yep. that is a myth? I, I think I, I talked to fairly smart people, uh, including top economists and people like that. And they'll say, well, labor cost doesn't matter anymore because labor is only 10% of the cost of making something. Yeah? And and I say, yes, if you if you if you're in a an, an automotive assembly plant and you're right, you're right up here at the top of the pyramid of the bill of materials, then you say, what's the direct labor cost at the assembly plant, then it could be 10% of, of, the, of the total cost, where the cost is all the stuff they bought and then the cost of assembly, okay? And, but, but if you only, at that, at that assembly plant, if you're only including direct labor, like say, you know, $25, 30 an hour, and you do, and you do not include you know, fringes and benefits, so you're missing the fringes and the benefits, and they typically don't include the indirect labor, the people that move material around and do things like that, and they don't include the SG&A, you know, selling uh, general and administrative, you know, the bosses and the accounting and HR and all of that. Right. So now, now you, you've got a much higher percentage. And then if you think of this pyramid again, and they, they put all this material, and they're saying, well, that's the big chunk of it's material. Well, the cost of those castings and those machine parts and those forgings again has labor <laughs> built into them and the steel that you buy for your forging has labor built into it. so when you take all the labor in the entire pyramid labor is maybe 60 or 70 percent of the total cost the only thing left out is uh, natural gas to produce electricity and uh, uh, iron ore <laughs> to create iron and, and you know and sand to create glass and whatever everything else is is largely labor and 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 that's the reason the people say direct labor is you know, labor is only 10%. And I say, well, how come Chinese price is 30% lower than our price? If their labor was free, it could only be 10% lower than our price. How come it's 30% lower? And it's because when those people who do that math, they ignore all these other costs that I just described. Over the last uh, three years uh, of, of COVID, we've certainly had labor shortages so when you have a labor shortage those who are in the labor market isn't it costing more for labor than less today today in the u.s it's costing more for labor but it, but it's, it's doing that all over the world wage rates we've had inflation all over the world we've had covid reduced workforce size inflation people getting wages higher wages so, so the, the costs all over the world have, have gone up. Um, but the, I mean, the, the solution in the US is automation, you know, putting in robots, putting in cobots, 
of buying the newest and best equipment to make the product and in training. Now, I did a study once. I, I used to sell, I was, I was the president of what's now called uh, GF machining solutions, so EDM and high-speed milling machines. And I, 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 I took a typical EDM part and I had, I asked 10 shops to make it, do a good job at making it, send in the results. And I took our best guy, our best applications engineer, Doug Brown, and he did it. And he did it in 30, 40% less time than, than they did on average. So, and then, then we trained them to get them as good as Doug was. You see? So, so I, I believe that in many processes, maybe not all, but in many processes, that the best trained uh, specialist, technician, applications engineer, whatever you want to call them, that, that they can do dramatically better than the average. And so, so I believe that by, by hiring smart people, enthusiastic people, good attitude, training them well, that, uh, that they will increase your productivity substantially. Let me go backwards a little bit because we, we went off onto the track of automation and robotics. But as far as hiring people, training people, and I have to tell you that I'm in the process right now. Uh, our business has been uh, very good uh, and we're looking to hire more people. And we're, we're running ads, uh, not only on our website, but uh, in, in a couple of these platforms. And we're coming up with uh, zilch meaning nothing, very little. Maybe you have to throw a yellow jacket in. <laughs> <laughs> or, cer or certainly a, a manufacturing is cool t-shirt. There you go. And if you, if you, you let know, them know they get one of these, if they stay for six months, I'll bet you'll have a hundred applying for the jobs. <laughs> I think next month, I'm gonna have to wear my t-shirt, which you graciously gave me one, under my jacket, and I'll just flash a couple of times. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I, I do think that um, th there's no question it's a problem. I had one, one good piece of news I had. I read an article maybe four or five days ago about, a I think it was a Hyundai automotive assembly plant. Right. Somewhere, somewhere in the southeast, as I recall. And, and they had announced the factory, and they just recently announced that they had reached their hiring goal of 2,000 employees two years faster than they thought they would. Wow, that's now, amazing. Big company, good, very good benefits, I'm sure, but pretty good wages because they're trying not to be unionized. You know? right. so, 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 so they can maybe, like I said, they can maybe offer more than a, than a contract manufacturer can. But, but the fact that they were able to find 2,000, now the thing I'd want to know in that county, how many companies are there that are almost out of business because all their employees left and went to work for them? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, that right. can be tough. But, but, but to the extent that, that, that people see that, the extent that the, that the youth say, huh, my uncle just got a really good job at Hyundai and I, maybe I should go into manufacturing because manufacturing, huh, I, I, I've been watching Lou Weiss uh, on YouTube and and he, he and Harry say manufacturing is coming back. It looks like a good career again. So, so I, I think there's there, there's some there's some good news out there. Well, there is, and uh, you you certainly are a uh, uh, a leader in that uh, pack. So how how does a contract manufacturer focus on reforging 
uh, I'm sorry, uh, reshoring. <laughs> I knew what you meant. <laughs> yeah. There is such a thing as reforging, but uh, that's another topic. So how, how do they focus on the reshoring so that they get their products more local as opposed to overseas? So, so you're talking about the OEM or about the contract manufacturer? Contract manufacturer. Contract manufacturer, okay. First, the OEM should do the math correctly. And also think and, and th specifically think about the possibility of disruption, the possibility of, of something geopolitical happening that could cause them to, to be cut off from supply for months to years at a time. And, and, and so that's what the OEM should do. And the uh, contract manufacturer should pitch that concept to the OEM. So if I were if I were you and, and I, I were going into my good customers, you know, sometime each year, you go and say, what do you need? You need any new forgings next year? What can we do to help you? And you're a good salesman. And they say, yeah, we got enough. If we have a problem, we'll call you. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard that, that, that message. I, I would say, think about everything you're getting from offshore. Imagine, especially from the riskier places right now, like China, imagine something happened and you were cut off for six months or a year or two years, would your business survive if you and your and your supply chain were cut off? And if you say that you'd be close to bankrupt in six months, then don't you think it would make sense to ensure your survival and bring some of that sourcing back here to the United States, bring it back to Lou and you know, you, you, I'm putting words in your mouth. Give me enough work, I'll expand. You know, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll dedicate work to you if you give me enough work with the next long-term contract to go with it. You know, right. and I and, mean a big PO. Yeah. So, so, so think. I'd ask them. Do you have fire insurance on your factories? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Well, how many factories do you have? Ten. What's the chance of any one of them burning down in a year? Two percent, three percent, and yet you insure all of them, and yet you've got product from China coming into all your factories. That if you lost that supply, it would shut all your factories down. So why don't you insure that by sourcing a substantial portion of that work here in the United States? And I, Lou Weiss, would be happy to be your insurance man to do that. <laughs> you like the commissions, huh? <laughs> uh, there's a topic that we haven't touched on, so I'm, I'm going a, a little bit to the left or right. We're, we're having an issue now uh, recently with uh, regards to uh, uh, China and Russia and uh, uh, balloons and fighter planes and all of that <laughs> stuff. So we have a geopolitical issue that is clearly, clearly getting worse. What is going to happen? And this is just an opinion of uh, I'm asking you. What's going to happen if we have a geopolitical issue where, uh, you know, China throws a couple more balloons up, we shoot down a couple more, and uh, the United States says, you know what, uh, we're not going to let any more goods come into the country from your country, which we can't do because there's a lot of product they make that we have to have. You can't we, do it. Can't, we, never, we never do that. They, we, they, we, I think they're more likely to stop shipping us things than we are likely to stop buying things. How smart is that? Oh, that's stupid. Stupid for us to have let ourselves get into this position 
but and, and why are we there? Because China was a great place to buy decent quality, especially now, uh, really low prices, 30% or so below the US price, hardworking people, companies really aggressive that come after you to sell you the product. So, so but we're stupid to have let ourselves be so it would be one thing to be dependent on Canada, you know, <laughs> maybe Mexico, but to be that dependent on, on China is, is, is and was totally stupid for all the administrations and all the companies that, that let it happen. But the but, but we are where we are, you know, I think maybe building on what you said, I, I respect a fellow Ray Dalio, the, the founder of Bridgewater Associates hedge mm. fund, the biggest hedge fund in the world. Right. Uh, and I read an interview with him. And he said that he believes the, the chance of international war involving the US, which sounds like China, it doesn't sound like uh, Ireland, <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. that the chance of international war in the next five or 10 years, something like that, was 35%. 35%. Now, and, and what's the outcome going to be? Well, you think, think about the outcomes. First, we lack the industrial capacity to produce the large ongoing volumes of munitions and rockets and tanks and things like that that we were able to do in World War II, but we, we've lost so much of the manufacturing infrastructure that we're going to be horrible. Because first, we, we don't have the capacity. And then if you said, okay, we'll build some more factories. Oh, we're going to need machine tools. Where do we get the machine tools over in Asia? <laughs> we, just, we just went backwards. <laughs> so, so, so it's going to be very hard to, 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 to like, like even now, with, with a relatively small war going on between Ukraine and Russia. I don't know how many, tens of thousands of people on each side, as opposed to millions, okay? The Europe and the US are running out of ammunition, rockets, you know, missiles, all, all, all the things in tanks, the things you need to fight a war. And that's with just that little thing going on in Ukraine and Russia, rather than something happening in Taiwan and China and maybe expanding from that. So, so, so again, from, from, from the interest of the company, for their survival, it makes sense to bring the work back. And from the interest of the country, of, of ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, to, to, to have a, a, you know, a stable, safe, you know, economically viable uh, country going forward, uh, we need to strengthen our manufacturing so, so we can protect ourselves and that's that's an excellent reason for reshoring and rebuilding uh it goes it, that goes without saying uh, but i think let, let me let me give the point i made I, I gave a speech at notre dame university about three weeks ago right. and, and I, I made the pitch that we need to do that and i said and, and really the net result is finally peace because if if the u.s is weak and we know we can't make enough bullets and missiles and have enough fighters and enough factory, and we know we're going to lose a conventional war to China, say, or any country, but most likely China. If we know we're going to lose that, then we're more likely to escalate to nuclear than if we have, we know that we have the solid manufacturing economic background to pay the taxes, to, you know, to pay for the defense, and to make the product that you need for it, then we can say, 
we, we can be more flexible. We can give a little bit where we have to because we know we're not getting backed in the corner. Because who, 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 who pulls the knife out first if there's two guys fighting? It's not the big strong guy that can beat up the other guy. It's the weak guy who knows he's going to get beaten up. He goes for the knife or the gun to, to protect himself. And so we, we want to be the, the big strong guy that can say, ah, that's okay, Bill. It was, I, was, I know you're kidding. I, I, you know, let's work it out as opposed to bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Harry, but, uh, let me throw a couple yeah. other things. You talked about what can a shop do? They can pitch the advantages of domestic sourcing. On your website, you should have something that says, are you tired of um, long deliveries, disruptions, difficult communication, quality issues, duties, you know, what have you? We, we've got the solution. The delivery, communications, ability to keep just-in-time inventories instead of having to balloon your inventories because unpredictable deliveries. Green, are you worried about the, you know, the ecological impact of, of your sourcing? We're right down the street, green, much, much improved. Um, you, you can identify, like if I, if I were a shop, I, I'd say, huh, let's think about all the customers that we've lost to offshore over the last 20, 30 years, and go to all of them and say, Bill, remember me? <laughs> well, I used to sell you a lot of widgets, and how are you doing on those widgets now? Are you are you confident in your supply? If you're not, let's let's see if there's a way that we can build up your confidence and build up our business and get back to the relationship. We good for the community, good for the country. Um, uh, when you do succeed at reshoring, document it. You know, write an article, come to us with it. We'll we'll get it published and and get out there in Industry Week or somewhere like that, talking about your that may, if you succeed. I'll bet I could convince Lou to have you on the show with the two of us to talk a, about your reshoring successes. Not a problem. Right? Uh, develop, we, I also say develop broader competence. So U.S. tends to have Ford shops, stamping shops, um, machine shops, wire harness, you know, plating, whatever. And, and there's a lot of Chinese companies that will do all that and more. And you can go to them and say, I want a refrigerator that's about this big and it's going to sell it's going to wholesale for you know $800 and, and the Chinese company will design the whole thing, source all the components, meet all the regulations, develop the paperwork, package it and ship it to you. Okay? And it's very hard to find anybody in the US that has that broad, you have to bring 10, 20 shops together to do that. So, so, so I always advocate to, to contract manufacturers to add more value, start doing assemblies, build your way up here, start, start sourcing, producing more of the components down here. So now you, you can offer that more like that, that the complete single source responsibility. That does mean that they have to pretty much change their business platform and format in order to do the things that you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, but time moves on and you have to keep up with the times. Uh, by the way, I'd like to just mention that I'm, I, the comment you made uh, about deliveries and so on, uh, I now know that you looked at the All Metals and Forge Group uh, website because on the front cover, uh, front of the home page, it says, are you tired of long forging deliveries? And I asked for eight to 10 weeks. So I'm not plugging myself, but so be it. <laughs> Harry, do you have any parting words for us? You know, for everybody who's come back from a previous uh, episode or session, happy, happy to see you again. 
Uh, and the key thing is that uh, that I've got a goal of bringing five or six million manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. And the only way I do that is one job at a time. So out there, if, if, if you're a company and you've reshored, love to hear about it. If you have the opportunity to reshore, if you're an OEM and, and you're trying to decide domestic or foreign sourcing, if you're a job shop contract trying to convince the OEM to buy from you, email me, uh, contact me through the website. So let's give the audience your email. The email is harry.moser, M-O-S-E-R, at reshorenow.org. And just remember, everybody loves Harry. <laughs> as, long, as, as long as they call me and email me and work with me, they, they love me or not love me. I Let's just get the job done. <laughs> I got it. Harry, it was great talking to you again. We'll be talking to you next month. Yep. And, uh, stay healthy. Stay smart. And uh, we're picking up points for your yellow jacket. <laughs> thank, thank you, Lou. Thank you, Harry. So turn off the recording for a minute. So, folks, uh, tune in to Manufacturing Talk Radio every week. Uh, take a look at our website. We've got uh, five web, uh, five podcasts, uh, Women in Manufacturing, uh, Harry um, Mosier in Manufacturing, which you just listened to. We have a, a bunch of his shows. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, if you'd like to be a guest, contact me at L.A. Weiss at manufacturingmfgtalkradio.com. Thanks a bunch. Bye, everybody. I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his... This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.